0: Hey, we have spent um, some summer months here studying some different pursuits, but really for the last year as a whole, we've walked through John chapter 13 to John chapter 17, all of Jesus' teaching and time in the upper room. Jesus and the disciples, you remember, started last fall, shared at the outset in a time of foot washing. And then they shared a Passover meal where Jesus instituted these kind of very familiar elements, the cup and the bread, with new meaning for a new covenant, His blood and His body. And He taught them many things. But then, eventually, they left that upper room. The best guess is somewhere around 9 p.m., they left that upper room in Jerusalem. He had told them a hint of where his destination would be. He had said, I am going to prepare a place for you. I am going to prepare a place for you. And he wasn't talking about mansion building. It's not like he had his tool belt and his hammers like, I'm going to go build something. He was talking about the cross. About the fact that he was going to accomplish a way for them to be able to have access to the Father in heaven forever. In 12 hours, Jesus was going to be nailed to a cross. At that moment, as they left that house, from the upper room to the darkest tomb. That's the title for our sermon today, and uh, it covers a lot of ground. Jesus has said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. His going would be the preparation we needed to have access to God. And ultimately, we know that that was the cross, his sacrifice for us in our place for our sins. But talking about the school year here, you guys know then every good true event and in every good made-up story alike, there's a whole narrative arc there, isn't it? It's not just the climax. Maybe the end of the book, the last chapter, the end of that series you've been binging on, or, or the book number eight in this series of 12, right? Like, it's not just one climactic moment that matters. I Man, when there's a story that's true, that resonates, when it's your life, you know it isn't just one moment, it's been a series of moments. And there's been a place over here, or a room over there, or a roadway in the middle where major events have happened, where you've learned to love and, and appreciate the story, where Songs are sung about where um, history happened. The climactic moment maybe stands out above the rest, but the rest mattered. And that's the question we want to ask today. Because rightly so, we spend a lot of time every year, we have it built into our calendars to come back and remember the cross. But what happened between the upper room and the tomb? What was the journey to that cross like? That's my hope in the sermon today. Having marveled at the teacher in the upper room, what does he teach us as he leaves it? We're going to follow Jesus along four waypoints today on the way to the tomb. And we start with this. Jesus went from the upper room to the garden. To the garden. Now, Jesus was leading his disciples to a place they are familiar with. But we aren't familiar with it. So maybe this map could help us. Uh, This is an artist's depiction of what Jerusalem might have looked very much like in, in Jesus' time. And so we don't know exactly where, but somewhere in the walls of the city, there is a house where Jesus and the disciples had met for dinner. And so they're in this house in the upper room and they leave and they head towards the east side of the city. And they come out, and right here there's this brook called Kidron. It's called the Kidron Valley. And they go down and cross the brook, cross the valley, and go over to the west side of the Mount of Olives where there is an olive grove. They didn't make this difficult for us here, right? The Mount of Olives has an olive grove in it. And that olive grove was called, or at least this section of the olive grove was called, and it is still there today, Gethsemane. Gethsemane means the place of the olive press. In the middle of this cultivated place where horticulture and agriculture was occurring, so they called it a garden often, there was olive trees row by row by row. We know that here with our orchard. We're getting ready for apple season. We know what that kind of feels like. It's beautiful. It's natural. It's serene. And there was an olive press, very similar to a a wine press with this big kind of stone bowl with a huge stone on a, on a pole that you could roll around. You'd dump all these olives in, and the stone would crush the olives and extrude the oil for that olive oil, which was used in all sorts of ways in that time and place. There in this olive grove on the west side of Jerusalem, on the west side of the mountain, sorry, on the east side of Jerusalem, there was this Gethsemane, this place of an olive crushing experience well jesus loved to go there we read elsewhere that jesus frequented this garden he and his disciples this is one of his go-to places he loved to get out of the city away from the noise and crowds and get away to nature where he could spend some time with his followers and friends and his god do you have a place like that like resonates with your soul every time you get away to it? Is it trail number nine over in the national park? Is it it a hammock in your backyard or a bench over along Lake George? Do you got a place where you're like, every time you get there, you can breathe? Well, Jesus was leading his men to a place like that for him right before he would die. We are going to follow along mostly in the book of Matthew, chapter 26. You can join me there. Matthew 26, we'll read 30, but then jump to verse 36. So Matthew 26, 30 and following. Now, I'm going to ask for your grace, but I'm sure you're eager to give it. We're going to walk through a lot of scripture today as we follow this storyline, which is something God's people love to do, yes? And so let's, uh, let's journey together as we go. Verse 30 of Matthew 26 says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And if you skip, there's a conversation that happens there, but if you skip to verse 36, as they're going, it says this, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, Not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you couldn't watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for a second time, he went away and prayed. And I want to interrupt myself here because Matthew jumps right into his prayer, but Luke tells us that right at this moment, something else interesting happens. In Luke's account of this moment, he says this, There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. But Matthew continues with an account of that prayer. He says, Father, my Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus went to the garden. And what happens here is worthy of much more time than we can give it this morning. He spends intentional and actually agonizing time in prayer with God, his heavenly Father. And as he prays, and as the disciples sleep, we learn a lot in the meantime. I think, first of all, we, we easily become aware of the painful anticipation Jesus has for what's about to occur. He's processing the physical pain from the torture and execution he'll endure. He's processing the separation from God and The sin that he's going to take on account of the world. He's processing the abandonment of his friends at his lowest moment. He's going through all of this and it's having a profound effect on him. Jesus consented to take the place as a rescuing savior of the world before the earth was created. This wasn't a surprise that this was coming for him. But in his humanity, this was a moment where it came to terms for him. This is where he comes to terms with his choice. He's crushed by agony over what's ahead. He becomes physically affected by that, drenched and sweating so much in his agony that the the writers say it's like drops of blood were falling off of him. I think it's likely that's mostly just a description, but it's also medically possible that his capillaries were bursting in his skin and blood was mingling with sweat. He's crushed by agony in painful anticipation. You know, the the correlation and picture, it's not lost on us, is it? That here is Jesus in Gethsemane, the place of the olive press, where olives are brought together and crushed. So their oil can be extruded. And here is Jesus beginning to be crushed by the weight of his rescue. Sweat and soon blood pouring out of him for us. We also see here the doctrine of the incarnation at play. Jesus who became human. God the son who became son of man and it stretches the limits of our comprehension. I mean, right like how is God the Son asking God the Father to change the plan that both God the Son and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit had come up with together in the first place? Like how, how is this conversation, what are they th- like how is that happening? And how is Jesus as God able to know what's coming ahead but as man Being affected so much by it. Wouldn't you like to understand how he's able to be both of those things? I would too. And I won't explain it today. I can't. But as the church looks faithfully at God's word, what we've seen for centuries is, what we've understood to be true from the very start, was that Jesus was both true God and true man. Both. And and 450 AD, at the, the Council of Chalcedon, the church pastors thought about it this way. They explained it and expressed it this way, that the two natures, God and man, of Jesus, the two natures are always without mixture, without confusion, without division, and without separation. We call it the hypostatic union hypostatic union, that Jesus is both true God and true man, truly God and truly man, both at the same time, not a 50-50 mix, not that some elements are put on pause for a while. He's fully God and fully human without mixture, without confusion, without separation. This is what God's word communicates to us. Even though we can't fully understand all of who God the Son is, when he became A human. Christmas just continues to rock our minds, even as Jesus comes to his death mountain. There's another item of interest here. As Jesus prays, evidently, an angel comes to help him. An angel comes. Don't we all love an angel story? Whether you're touched by an angel or they're in the outfield, right? We love an angel story. The White Sox could use a couple of those angels here. Turn the season around. We like to think that angels are there to save the day. And it's clear, God's word teaches that angels are real. God created spiritual beings that do his work. No doubt God has used them to save the day before. Maybe in our own lifetimes. Maybe even in our own storylines. But this angel didn't take away Jesus' problem, did he? This angel didn't take away Jesus' pain. In fact, after this angel comes, Jesus is in more anguish and more distress. That's when he prays and sweats harder than ever. God wasn't changing the plan. That's not what the angel did here. Instead, what's the angel do? Strengthens Jesus for the plan. The angel doesn't change the plan. He strengthens Jesus for the plan. How? I'm not sure. And it's not really the point of this moment. But evidently, we can know that God's messengers aren't necessarily around to rescue us or to make our lives better or to take away our problems or to kiss our boo-boos. Your mom might be an angel, and I'm glad for her, right? Thankful for my mom. She's an angel most of the time. But that's not what God has in plan for angels, at least not all the time, we can see. And maybe let me ask us this. Would we think or expect in the end that an angel could do more for us than God himself indwelling dwelling us can do for us? In Christ, God lives in you. Do we need an angel to save the day in our lives if we have God with us? I would argue we we should be pretty confident about how he's prepared us in the meantime. And would we need an angel to show up and save the day for us when he's given us his living and active word of God? As we submit to it, it, it does its work in us and provides us with what we need. Some things to think about as we think about angels. But it's a fascinating moment all the same. But those thoughts aside, ultimately what we see here in this garden, in this waypoint towards a tomb, is ultimately that Jesus gave up his own desires. That's what we really see transpiring here in the garden. Jesus prayed in Matthew 26, 39, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want this. This isn't what I'm hoping for. This isn't my desire. Let this cup of your wrath pass. The price I'll need to pay, the suffering I will endure, let it pass. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. More than what he desired, Jesus desired what God wanted Jesus gave up his desires, submitting himself to God, submitting himself to pay our debt. Jesus was perfectly obedient to God, rather than his own desires, rather than his own abilities. How different his friends were in that situation. While Jesus is laboring to align his will through prayer to God, His friends were doing the opposite. They had good desires. We we skipped over the conversation, but as they left the upper room, they got into another kind of silly moment that they are prone to do. And they told Jesus, hey, we will die rather than abandon you. They all agreed, we would die instead of abandoning. you. We will lay down our lives for you, Jesus. But all it took was a hike to the orchard on the hill. And when Jesus requests his friends to work alongside him in desperate prayer, they lay down themselves to go to sleep. They fell asleep. Here they are saying, and, and zealous to the idea, we will die for you. But I don't want to pray for a while like that. So he wakes them up, seems pretty gracious about it. He says, Listen, you're ready to go to war for me. Well, that chance is here. You're being tempted to slack off, to be lazy, but don't give in. I want you with me. I need you with me. Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Wait and watch and pray. He goes off to pray, hoping they're with him again this time. And they're not. And he checks in again later, and they're still not. I appreciate the way Eugene Peterson rephrases that insight from Jesus. The spirit's willing, the flesh is weak. He says it this way: there's a part of you that's eager and ready for anything in God. There's another part. That part's as lazy as an old dog by a fireplace. Do you see some of yourself in that description? The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Verge students, I'm thinking about you up here. And I think often in high school, we're prone to that passion for life. We can do this. God, what are you up to? This world is yours for the taking. Let's go. There's that spirit is willing side to you. But there's a flesh is weak side, right? There's... A new girl who's kind of cute there's that algebra test that I'm totally overwhelmed by there's all these other things that get in the way. us grown-ups do you, do you sense that in your moments of clarity when you've been in God's word in the morning and you're fresh out of your time and? Prayer and conversation with God when you walk out of the house of worship, maybe pretty consistently, you're thinking, Man, God, I see you, I feel you, I'm excited for what you're doing, I'm trusting in you today. Let's go. And then dinner was burnt. Or or then the bills came. Or or then the boss called, and the spirit was so willing. The flesh was so weak, and we get drowned out and distracted away and all the same. See, in the garden, Jesus gave up his desires, but the disciples kept failing at theirs. The disciples kept failing and failing and failing. In a moment, Judas would arrive with soldiers, and the disciples, seeing their leader arrested after a little bit of a kerfuffle, Flee away from him too. We're going to see ourselves alongside the disciples in a moment, but let's follow Jesus to the next destination. From the upper room to the garden, Jesus then went to the courts. Jesus was led through a circuit of rulers and leadership on both the Jewish religious side and the Roman imperial side. He was brought before the former high priest, Annas, and the current high priest, Caiaphas. He went before the Sanhedrin council overnight. And and this is a scene from that conversation in Matthew 26, 63. The high priest is talking to Jesus. Jesus has been giving him the silent treatment and enduring the torture and beatings he's walking through with them. And the priest is getting angry because they can't make anything stick on this man. Because he's innocent. And he's who he says he is. And finally the high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. But they had a problem because under Roman imperial law, the Jewish council couldn't execute anybody. And so they need to get him before a Roman leader and have them sentence him to death. So they send Jesus off to Pilate, who sees through their ruse and thinks, I don't want to do anything with this. And he sends him off to Herod, who's the governor of the region, not just the specific area. And Herod takes a look and is interested at first, but realizes this is a sham. I don't want to have anything to do with this, and sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate now is stuck with a hot potato. He doesn't know what to do. He sees through what's going on here. He sees that Jesus is innocent. His wife's having these visions from God about the fact that this man is who he says he is. Don't kill him. And he's caught between a rock and a hard place. And he has a conversation with Jesus, trying to get Jesus to like say anything to him, help himself to get out of this. And he says to Jesus, John tells us in in chapter 19, that Pilate says, Do you not know, Jesus? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answers him. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. That is quite the intersection of sovereignty of God and the political landscape of human rulership. It's quite the intersection over the sovereignty of God, even over unjust corruption. But to speed the story up, at every turn Jesus was beaten and mistreated and lied about. But he didn't play into their narrative. In these courts of civil and religious leadership, Jesus gave the truth. Jesus gave the truth. Even though the rulers kept serving themselves. See, the the Jewish leadership, they were focused on what they were doing to keep the law. So much so they, they were distracted and blind to the fact that here was their Messiah that they had been waiting for. And the the Roman leaders, man, they were so focused on getting and keeping power and control that they just didn't want to upset the locals. So Jesus went to the cross. Matthew 27, 24. Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing but rather that a riot was beginning. So he took water and washed his hands before the crowd. Again, what a juxtaposition. About 12 hours ago, Jesus had been washing feet. And here's Pilate washing his own hands of the matter. He says, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. And how limited a view us humans have of what's really going on in the day-to-day realities of our lives. See, here's Pilate thinking he could free himself from the guilt of this situation by making sure everyone understood, like, as far as I see it, I'm setting this all up. This is on you. This isn't on me. I have control to absolve myself of guilt here. But only the blood of Jesus can pardon the guilt he really had. He didn't see. The crowds, man, they thought they were accepting responsibility right then and there. They didn't see. They didn't realize that they were already in possession of the guilt that drove Jesus to the cross in the first place. They were born and lived in sin, separated from God. That's what was driving Jesus to the cross, not their chance in the courtyard. They, along with all people across all of time, were guilty already. Were the reason why Jesus was going to die. Their lungs shouted in that courtyard, but our lives have roared louder still. His blood is because of us. Crucify him. Verse 26. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. I hope we never get over this reality. On the cross, Jesus gave his suffering. On the cross, Jesus gave his suffering, even though it was the crowds who kept the guilt. It was us Who had the guilt. He gave his suffering. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. And he himself though bore our sins in his body on the tree. And God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners. Jesus Christ died for us. So finally Jesus went to the tomb. He went to the tomb. Matthew 27 tells us that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and Jesus yielded up his spirit. Verse 59 says that Joseph of Arimathea took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. At the tomb, Jesus gave his life. He died. For you, for sin and separation against God, for the glory of God, Jesus gave his life. He had said he was going to prepare a place for us, to prepare us to be able to be in that place. And so, leaving the upper room, he chose submission in that garden. He chose truth in those courts, and he chose suffering on the cross, and he chose death in the tomb. Jesus chose obedience to an agonizing journey to death. He chose obedience to an agonizing journey to death, from heaven to earth, from the manger to the cross, from the upper room to the darkest tomb. Really, from the Garden of Eden all the way to the Garden at Gethsemane, this was God's glorious plan. Jesus chose to agonizingly agonizingly give himself in our place, for our sins, so that we could be recipients of the gift of life. Jesus chose obedience to an agonizing journey to death so that we could be recipients of the priceless gift of life. Have you received that gift Do you know life because you trusted in Jesus? Today we learn, among other things, perhaps most importantly, that Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is our only hope. Because church, everybody else fails miserably at saving themselves at accomplishing themselves, at being right before God themselves. Even in this story, we saw that even with the best of intentions, like the disciples, or you and I on our best days, even following all the rules, like those Jewish leaders were so focused on, and maybe some of us, or, or even by claiming to be right in our own ways, because of our own way that we've set up our own lives, we claim to be right and good and fair, and I'm the right kind of person because I live the kind of way that I feel like I understand is the right way to live, even that, we all fail at it. We all miss the whole point. In this story and in every story that's true, Jesus alone is the hero. There is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Jesus has said it himself in that upper room. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Have you stopped looking for another way yet? Having believed in Jesus, have you gone back to finding other ways to live life again? There is no other way. Is he helping you to see right now that you aren't the way he designed you to be and that he is true? Then call on Jesus today. Confess to him who you are. Believe that he is who he said he is. He is the rescuing God and he died for your Sin be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We learn that Jesus is our only hope. If you hear nothing else today, that is what's true. But we also learn. That life in Jesus is a life lived in active obedience, an active dependence on him. Life in Jesus is lived in active dependence. Just think about the conversation Jesus had with his disciples. He said, listen, y'all need to watch and pray with me here. Look to me, look at your life, be active and pray. Depend on God. Do it with me, he says. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Because I know your spirit's willing, but your flesh is weak. Now, yeah, it's Jesus who's the hero. He's the one who's strong. He's the one who made you alive. He's the one who made you right with him. He's the one we need to depend on. But our active dependence is an active one as we turn to him, as we pray to him, as we follow him. Christians should live in active dependence on God. And, And let me clarify. The reality is I think too often we don't. Too often... Instead of depending on God, we're avoiding him because we're ashamed. We don't depend on him, we avoid him. Or we're overworking ourselves because we're afraid. There's fears, there's stresses, and we start overworking instead of depending. We ignore him when we're convicted. He's moving us, he's prompting us, maybe even you today, right now, and our instinct is to say, "Uh uh-uh, let me turn on some music, let me turn on a show, let me go for a drive, Let me ignore whatever this stirring is that's in my heart. Instead of depending on him, we snooze on him when he's called us into a mission. You see how we don't live in active dependence on him so often? Jesus says you're willing to do something, you want to fight this temptation, then prayerfully depend on God. You know, I've been blessed to survive going skiing a few times. That's maybe the best way to say it. But here's the deal. If you've ever gone skiing, you know that there is only one way to the top of that hill. To the top of that mountain. You ain't getting up there by climbing. You got your skis on, and the snow's slippery, and the hill's steep, and even getting across flatland makes you look like you don't have a clue what's going on. You get to that hill... You can try, and you can work, and you can pizza slice or square or sideways step all you want to. You are not getting to the top of that hill. And soon, you're going to fall down, exhausted, and pass out at the bottom of the hill. When right beside you, there's a ski lift. It's there for a reason. It's the one way to the top of that hill. All you have to do is trust it. You sit down, and it takes you all the way up there. Trust it. Depend on it. It'll get you where you need to go. Stop struggling at the bottom of the hill your own way. Stop avoiding it in the meantime because it looks like it's trying to help you. Stop snoozing on it when it's called you in to get to the top of that mountain. Just depend on it in the meantime. Prayerfully, actively, trust him. I think so often we're exhausted at the bottom of the hill because we're not trusting him. And maybe today you'd find yourself in a position where if Jesus were to walk into this room like he walked up to his friends in that garden, he might say, why are you exhausted? Why are you sleeping from exhaustion? Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Depend on me, the one who's the hero, the one who's given you life in the first place. I think we also see that we shouldn't expect obedience to come without anguish. Don't expect obedience without anguish. And I say that because don't we all want a good life? Don't we all want things to go well? Don't we all want our stories to be one that other people look to and they say, man, what do I got to do to be like them? Why are they living life to the fullest? Because we maybe expect God's plan for us to look that way, we use that as a rubric falsely to evaluate what God's calling us to do in life. So we find ourselves starting to ask these kind of questions all the time, like, well, uh, I don't know. I don't have peace about that, so I think I'm called to make more money instead. Right? "I, I don't know. That seems like it'd be hard. So... Probably going to spend my money on myself. (laughs) Or probably going to use my gifts and abilities for my own good. I don't know if kids are my thing. Investing in middle schoolers? I don't think so. Maybe. Maybe that's what God's calling you to do or not do. But I think it's worth noting that here in the garden of the oil press called Gethsemane, The God-man came to obey what God was calling him to do, which sounds like it ought to set him up for success, right? But for him, the experience of obeying God was anguish. It was counting a cost and experiencing that cost. Now, yes, for a joy set before him, for a purpose that's worth it in the end, not that we've have given anything to him, but to him are all things, Paul would say. I count it as nothing what I've sacrificed. None of it was a sacrifice. All of it was a gift from God for his good. It's worth it in the end. All of that's true. But in the here and now, sometimes obedience can feel like anguish. It was true for Jesus. It might be true for us. Sometimes we want the calling, but we don't want the cup. We want the promise, but we don't want his path. We want peace, but we don't want the perspiration that goes with living in his peace. Now, I'm not suggesting that anguish and pain is the only way to know you're doing what God wants. But it isn't true that the presence of those things means you're not doing what God's calling you to do. Or the fear of those things happening to you doesn't mean you still shouldn't step into it. There are times for sweat, and we may carry strong, emotional, painful feelings through life, even if we're living it obediently to God. Finally, a last lesson for us in this journey from the upper room to the tomb is that prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. We see that here Do we pray like Jesus prays? Man, we we have to be a people after God's name who depend on him in prayer. When Jesus was facing anguish in his mission, when he knew the disciples were gonna be facing temptation towards their mission, he and he invited them to join him, prayed. He knew conversation with God was what was needed. We might ask, did it work? I think we can see it did. His will aligned with God's will. He obeyed God to the cross for our sake, for our sin. But also in the book of Hebrews, we get a little perspective, a sneak peek into the power of Jesus' prayer in that garden. Because in Hebrews 5, verse 7 and following, it says this, that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. that sound like the Garden of Gethsemane? He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and with tears to him, to God, who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus became the source of salvation because he was able to stay and remain perfect through obedience because God saved him through his mission in part because he talked to God in it. Now I'll admit, you look at that verse and you might be confused. at first. It says, he prayed to God who was able to save him from death. But wait a second, wait a second. Jesus died. How did the prayer work? He who saved him from death didn't. God answered no evidently, right? I disagree. Because prayer changes things. Mostly it changes us. God heard Jesus and saved him from death two ways. First, death didn't destroy Jesus' obedience. God saved Jesus from death because his death didn't destroy his obedience because fear of death could have stopped Jesus from obeying him could have stopped Jesus from dying in our place for our sins he obviously felt it he said God take this cup away fear of death could have sabotaged the mission of Jesus but it didn't in part because he prayed and asked God for help and he did God saved him From death, death didn't scare him into disobedience. Second of all, death didn't destroy his life. Death didn't destroy his life. Now, yes, Jesus died. It might have seemed like the end. But God saved him from death. God raised Jesus back to life. Prayer changes things. Leaving the upper room, Jesus left the garden submitted to God's will. He left the courts speaking the truth. He left the cross having suffered and he entered the tomb having chosen to die. But he was going to leave the tomb alive. And where do you suppose he headed that day? Left the upper room went to the tomb three days later. Leaving the tomb, he went back to that upper room and survived a bunch of men who had failed him time and time again with the knowledge that they served a living son of man, son of God, perfect forever, their hero, about to send them on a mission more of that next week.